Hello, my friends. This is Joanne Lutz. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Third Option Wisdom. Today's podcast episode is called Before Gratitude. And there are three basic things I'd like to talk about today. One is about gratitude. Another is about bypass. And then I would like to share a kind of evolving, meandering story from my own life. What I mean by that is it's really several stories, but they link together as an evolution. So to begin, I want to talk about what I believe gratitude is. From my experience, gratitude is one of the seven emotions. And I believe there are, like every emotion, different intensities to gratitude. So it could be a light gratitude, meaning it's a simple appreciation in a given moment for a person, an event, the sun shining, just a simple appreciation in a moment. It doesn't necessarily sink deeply into our bones and yet it's still real. So that would perhaps be on the, on the lighter layer. I believe it goes all the way into a very deep space in our hearts of this deep-seated, genuine appreciation, a true thankfulness, a kind of relishing in the, it's not exactly joy, it, it's like a safety. It's, it's a knowing, sort of like the just right moment that I talked about a while ago, a knowing that this is exactly where you're meant to be in this moment, something so aligned within you that your heart opens and the appreciation, the thankfulness, that is gratitude at its very deep level. And so gratitude has a range from that light, oh, how lovely that there is the sun. I'm truly grateful for that. To, I am so touched and deeply appreciative of the work that I get to do with people that people allow me into their lives, sometimes at very challenging moments. They allow me to walk with them in their journey with so much vulnerability. And I get to learn from these people just as they are receiving whatever they may receive from me. 
that place of truly operating from where I'm meant to operate from is such a tremendous gift that I, I can't fully wrap language around it. I can feel it in my body. It almost has like an expansiveness of my heart. It has that Grinch quality when it's like bigger and bigger and bigger, his heart gets bigger and bigger and bigger. That's sensationally what gratitude is like for me. And emotionally, it is a kind of authentic appreciation that really the, the words don't do us justice. I think that's true probably of all the emotions that when it is in its most intense place, the words don't quite do it justice. So I just want to establish what I mean by gratitude before entering into the next phase of what we're going to talk about today. Because what you think I mean and what I actually mean might not be the same and language is funny, so I think it helps to know what I'm talking about. So then let's talk about bypass. And bypass can happen really with anything, but I'm going to talk about it specifically as it relates to gratitude. I have certainly offered this homework to my clients as well, but there's a, a kind of practice that is out and about in the world, like a gratitude list. And so one sits down and begins just listing all of the things that you already have in some way or another that you feel grateful for, except it's a little tricky because very often in that realm of the list, we hear in our heads the should. We start shooting all over ourselves. We're supposed to be grateful for the roof over our heads. We should really be glad that we don't have to go through quarantine alone, or we should definitely be happy that we have somebody else with us. And that's not gratitude. That's going around, sort of imagine being on the highway and kind of going around the accident to get to the other side. But the problem is the accident is still there. So the accident is some other emotion. You may really feel angry at the people that you're with. You may really feel sad that you don't have somebody else in quarantine with you. Whatever is true for you, the supposed to, the should, is a bypass. And this can be in any realm in our lives that we skip over instead of nudge our way through. Walk through the fire is different from 
skipping around in the dewy grass. So bypass cheats us. It cheats us of trusting ourselves because if you tell yourself that you are supposed to be grateful for the roof over your head, and in fact, there's something really out of alignment for you with where you live. And you don't know what that is yet, but you know that something is not a match. It, it doesn't allow you, you don't find yourself fully held by the space. Well, you need to pay attention to that. You know, what's going on there matters. So when you tell yourself that you are supposed to, that you should feel grateful and you put it on your list, you're effectively lying to yourself. And in lying to yourself, how can you possibly trust yourself with any of the decisions that you make? Because the more that we lie to ourselves, the more we disrupt self-trust. There's also, it's a real thing, but it's another, it can be another voice in our heads, which is if you're not grateful for what you already have, what the heck makes, makes you think that you're going to be grateful if you have more, that you're going to be happy if you have more. And I totally get that. And it is a real thing, but it still means if you're going to find something to be grateful for, it matters that it's real for you instead of a facsimile of what you believe you are supposed to be grateful for. It's not the same thing to really find, this is when I do the homework, I often will do it as a single thing instead of a list. So is there one thing today for which you feel grateful whether it's something light like the sunshine as long as that's real not just oh well it's nice that it's sunny out no does it touch you in some way or it could be anywhere in the sliding scale from the lightness to the depth of gratitude, the Grinch heart growing and growing and growing. And you can't do it wrong. It's just notice what's real for you, not what someone else tells you, not what the voice in your head. Okay. So we know what, you know what my version of gratitude is. And you maybe now understand what I mean by bypass. So I'm going to begin uh, a story of my life. And we're going to start when I was a preteen. And I had two visions for my young adult life. One is that I would get to live on an island by myself. 
So I was a fan of Gilligan's Island. I wanted to live on Gilligan's Island without Gilligan and the Skipper and the Professor and Marianne and the Howells and Ginger. I wanted the island all to myself. I don't think I realized until I started preparing for this episode really how early on and how consistently I have been an introvert <laughs> because when I think of that now, I'm like, huh, that's a little funny. So one is I wanted to live on this island by myself. And I also had this fantasy of getting married and having a tremendous rainbow wedding. So all of my bride, bridesmaids would be in different color dresses. It would be spectacular. Now, if you put those two things together, it's more than a little bit funny to me that I'm going to live completely alone on an island. Where am I going to meet this mythological creature that I'm going to marry? And who would my friends be that I would be dressing up in these rainbow colors? It was a preteen fantasy, what can I tell you? So that's what I wanted back then. Then when I got into my teens, probably after babysitting for so much um, in my young adult, in my young life, I changed my mantra. I changed my mantra to, I am never going to get married and I am never going to have kids. And I kept that mantra going for years. And then when I was 24, I met this guy, fell in love with him. And when I was 29, we got married. And of course, he has two kids. So life doesn't always work out the way I plan. And if you knew how often I said, I am never going to get married and never going to have kids, you might have believed me. I believed me. And then I met Mark and everything changed. Okay. So fine, so now I'm married and I have two stepchildren and the situation is hard and messy and challenging and my internal mantra of never gonna get married, never gonna have kids, there's that part of me going, Jen, why didn't you listen to yourself? What were you thinking when you got yourself involved in this? And still there I was and I didn't get myself out of it. I don't know if the love was bigger. I don't know if the uh, financial challenges were so big that I couldn't leave. I don't know if really the lessons that I was meant to learn in my life could happen with this man and these children in a way that something else might not have been as joyful for me. Whatever the case may be, that was sort of the life path that I took. And then in, 2000, in 2003, uh, I was selling real estate. Mark and I were both selling real estate at that point. And years before, I had sold this lovely couple a two-family home in Arlington. And they decided that they wanted to move out into the western part of the state, truly into the country. And we decided that the best way to market their home at that time would be to sell it as two condos. That's how they could yield the highest profit for their investment. 
So I'm upstairs in the first unit that we put on. We didn't put them on at the same time. We did the upstairs first. And as I'm walking around the unit and meeting people and uh, speaking to potential buyers about how it might fit for them and so forth, I'm thinking, this is a nice, nice unit. This, this is lovely. And sometime that summer, Mark's paternal grandmother died and left him a little bit of money. He had, remember, no money. Left him a little bit of money. And so Mark immediately started thinking, oh, we should buy a house. And we maybe looked at one or two things, but really we couldn't afford to buy a house. And maybe on the third or fourth weekend of doing an open house on that upstairs unit of Molten Road, it was a slow time. No one was coming in. And I realized, huh, this could work for us. Four bedrooms, one bath, living room, dining room, kitchen, two floors. Interesting. And it's in Arlington, which is where we already had lived. So I call Mark. He's at an open house. I'm at an open house. I call him and I say, we should buy Molten Road. I don't even say hello. That's all I say. We should buy Molten Road. And his response is, who is this? <laughs> Which was really funny because <clears throat> he didn't want to buy Molten Road. Like that was ridiculous. We weren't doing that. We weren't doing a condo. We weren't da 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 da. So we bought Molten Road <laughs> and we lived there for 10 years. But in that first few months of living there, we closed in mid-October. And in November, we went to a residential workshop. We'd been to many, many workshops. And at a time of great connection between us at the workshop, we made love and discovered a couple of weeks later that I was pregnant. I still had no plans of having my own children. This was not in any way something that I was interested in. I was 36 years old and completely freaking out about getting pregnant to the point where we went to three different drugstores in three different towns to get home pregnancy tests with the hope that maybe the first one or the second one just weren't accurate. Alas, they were all accurate. And so I, I was completely freaked, as I said. I didn't want to be that person. I didn't want to be the mom. I didn't want to be someone that other people would come up to me and say, oh, can I touch your belly? I didn't want to be questioned about how happy I must be that I was about to have a child because I wasn't. And over the first mm, several months, like two, like 12, 13 weeks, something like that, I started to unwind a little bit of the tension in me 
about whatever stories I had in my head of what it meant to be pregnant, to be a mom. And my shifting thinking allowed me to very slowly begin to embrace what it might mean to become a mom. And over February vacation, we had Mark's kids with us. And on Valentine's Day, we told them that there was going to be another member of the family. We hadn't told them yet um, for a variety of reasons, but not the least of which is, you know, you're supposed to wait 13 weeks before you tell people. And since telling Joe and Julia also meant that everyone that they knew would know, um, or they'd have to keep a secret and that didn't feel fair to ask them to do that. Um, we didn't tell them until it was 13 weeks. The next week, Mark went on a business trip, uh, a convention in Las Vegas for real estate. And in the history of our lives together, Mark and I never traveled separately at that point. The only other time that either one of us had gone away separately was when he had gone just maybe a month before because his aunt died in Minnesota. And so this meant that both times that we were separated at such a distance due to travel, I was pregnant. So after taking him to the airport, I came home and I just collapsed into sleep. I was so exhausted. And then I think I was spotting. And I called the midwife that I was working with. I just said, I'm not sure. I think something's off. And she had me come in and listen for a heartbeat. And there was no heartbeat that she could hear. And so then she sent me for an ultrasound. And although weeks before, there we had I had had an ultrasound because I was concerned about something at that point too, and there had been a heartbeat then, there no longer was a heartbeat. And when I learned that I miscarried, I was heartbroken, which is really ironic because I hadn't wanted to have a baby ever, except for when I was a little girl. I hadn't desired the experience of giving birth. It is funny because I, I did have one wish is that I had wanted to know what it was like to be pregnant, but I didn't want to have the baby. I forgot that until just this moment. And so I got exactly what I wanted. I had the opportunity to be pregnant for a bit and not have a baby. So when I called Mark to tell him when he was on his, uh, when he was at his conference in Vegas, we both cried. He was, I think, at the Bellagio or something with, you know, music playing in the background and not able to find a private space. And it was 
just a mess. But we both cried and he said, do you want me to come home? And I said, there's no, there's no reason to come home. You do your thing. I just obviously wanted to let you know. And a few days later, when I went to pick him up at the airport, we're in the car for just a few minutes and we start arguing about something. I don't remember what. And then he turns to me and says, it's your fault. So he blamed me for having the miscarriage. And I can't even tell you the variety of emotions and the intensity with which I experienced them. I was a little bit deer in the headlights, just frozen. And I had enough venom in me to tell him to go screw, only I probably was a little more venomous than that, and to let him know that he was not welcome in my bed with me. He needed to sleep someplace else. And we had a futon in a guest room, so that's where he slept. And at that time, I didn't really know what else to do. As I said, I was a little paralyzed. And we get home and we each go our separate ways. And the next day I call my very close friend, Beth, and I'm standing in the pantry of Molten Road, that place that we had just bought. And I am sobbing into the phone. And I just say, he thinks it's my fault. And I can still feel my body collapsing onto the floor, just sinking down and sitting on the floor and crying my eyes out that he would blame me for the miscarriage. And Beth did an amazing thing and she just sat with me. She just stayed with me on the other end of the phone for as long as I needed. So, As the miscarriage itself went, it turned out that I needed to have a D and E, which is, I don't even remember what the letters stand for, but uh, there was a small surgical procedure because the fetus didn't, or whatever that material is at that point, hadn't flushed itself out. Um, and Mark took me for that but I really wasn't speaking to him. And what I learned in the course of waiting for my hormone levels to go down is that 
I had a very strange kind of pregnancy. It's not a typical pregnancy. It's called a partial molar pregnancy. And it's when two sperm implant one egg. And instead of breaking off into twins, it becomes one being with too many chromosomes. And it's not survivable. And they know it's a partial molar instead of a molar pregnancy because there had been a heartbeat at one point. So the challenge with a partial molar pregnancy is that the material that was theoretically going to become a baby, those cells have the ability to travel throughout the host, me, into the liver, the lungs, the brain, and effectively become a kind of cancer. So now I'm completely disconnected from and at odds with my husband. I'm in my own fog of grief, anger, fear, and I'm learning that I'm also under threat in my own body. And I don't really want Mark to have anything to do with anything. I just don't want him anywhere near me. I don't want to talk to him. I don't want to see him. Nothing. Because I was so hurt and angry and afraid. Meaning afraid that, was he right in some way? Although I didn't think so. But more than anything, hurt and angry. That he would have accused me of being the cause of the miscarriage. Even when we had this information, I, I wasn't over it. Meaning the information about what had actually happened. So that started a long period of me holding a grudge. And probably you don't know that many people who can hold a grudge as well as I can. I have got skills in this area. When I say I've got skills, I mean I mostly did not speak with my husband in any way, completely ignoring him as though he didn't exist for probably about nine months. It might have been only six, but I'm pretty sure it was nine months. You know, I told you I have trouble problems with numbers, but for a long ass time, I didn't speak to him. We lived in the same house. His children would come to visit and I still wouldn't speak to him. It was like living in a torture chamber. And yet I couldn't find my way out of the box of hurt. And what I knew is that I needed to find a way to take care of myself in what was going on because my hormone levels were not dropping the way they were supposed to. Because when you're not pregnant anymore, they're supposed to go away. And I required a couple of injections of a drug that also had an impact on my liver. And it was 
they considered it a kind of chemotherapy then. I've since learned that it's maybe not considered chemotherapy. I don't know. It was a big deal at the time. And after several treatments of going downtown for injections and blood tests and all kinds of stuff, I still had to go through every single week a blood test for a year watching my HCG levels drop and drop and drop and then make sure they stayed down. So in the course of a lot of that time, it was like we were two people living in the same house, but not even like roommates. You know, roommates like each other, sort of. They get along in some way. It was like we were living completely independent lives, but in the same house. And during that time, I was doing a lot of personal growth work. I was working with my therapist, Preta, who I mentioned last time. And I'd already done a lot of personal growth work and still I was in this messy, messy state. And in my work with Preta, I was able to fully express my anger and my sadness and my fear and to ride the waves of grief as they crashed through me. And I remember one time sitting in her little cabin in Essex, Massachusetts. And somehow she got to a, a nugget of how this experience in some way echoed something I'd already experienced before. And it took a while to get there. But this is what I realized and that she helped me to realize that when I was born, my mom, through a cosmic storm of events, her age, the hormonal shift that comes from having a baby, the trauma of having me and having been sexually abused at some point and having that reawaken in her, all of these different things had her be, be schizophrenic after having me. There had not been, I guess, evidence of her being schizophrenic before having me, but once I came, she was schizophrenic. Sometime thereafter diagnosed. And I went my entire life with my grandmother and my aunt, who was my mother's sister, and various people, but mostly in my family. I don't remember my grandfather ever doing this. But most of the people in my family would tell me, oh, you should have known your mom before you were born. She was lovely. She was so much fun. She had such a good sense of humor. Oh, I really wish you had known your mom before. It was amazing. She, before you were here, she was incredible. And what Preta said is, Joanne, it's as though you're being held up in that family when you were young by all the fingers that were pointing at you. As though you were in the center of a circle of 
all of these different people pointing their finger at you and it was their very fingers that were keeping you upright. What you didn't know then is that you were not to blame for your mom's schizophrenia. And when Mark blamed you for the miscarriage, that part of your brain that can't tell time was awakened. It's like it, you were right back to being a vulnerable little girl with all that responsibility being pushed onto you. And I knew what she meant by the responsibility because what I had always thought was not that I was to blame for his, her schizophrenia. That one had never occurred to me. I never, I had lived with that story of how wonderful she was before I arrived in the world for so long, it, it never had an association for me about me. Instead, what I got, the message that I received, was that I was responsible for attempting to keep her sane. That was the part I thought I had to do. But one is really just the flip side of the coin from the other. So when Preeta recognized that what I was experiencing in the, in the here and now, back in 2003, or 2004 probably at that point, what I was experiencing then was a reverberation, an echo of what I had lived throughout my entire life, that I was to blame. And since I didn't get it as my mother's daughter, since I didn't understand it in that realm of relationship, I managed to go out and find another situation in my life where I would be blamed for the breakup, for the failure of um, Mark's family. That somehow I was the reason that his marriage failed. Uh, you know, as far as Joe was concerned, my stepson, I was the reason that his parents weren't together. So again, a, in major ways and in a gazillion minor ways, I held it in my life that there was always an enemy. That I had all of this responsibility for how other people lived their lives, for how they made decisions, for the feelings that they carried and the experiences they had. And the reason that this was important besides the fact that it was a wound in me that was asking to be healed, with the experience of the miscarriage, I paused long enough to say, what am I really doing here? What am I here for? I'm selling real estate. It's not that I'm not good at it, but I don't love it anymore. You know, it was kind of interesting in the beginning. The part that I love the most is when I'm kind of counseling people through the process. That's what I love. And despite having been told again and again by people who knew me well that I should become a 
therapist or a counselor or a coach or something in that realm. I rejected that so vehemently. Once again, in case you weren't paying attention, life doesn't always work out the way I plan. Because obviously I've been doing this coaching thing for a bunch of years now. But it was impossible for me to do it from the place where I was holding it in my being that I would be to blame, that I would be responsible. What if I hurt someone that was one of my clients? What if a decision that they made came from something that I had said or done and then they experienced pain? I didn't understand where the boundaries were. I didn't understand the nature of boundaries at all. Because all I knew was that in a way that wasn't even verbal in my own experience, like meaning in my body, I was the one to blame for my mom being schizophrenic. I was somehow to blame for the failure of Mark's marriage. And now I was to blame for this miscarriage. Fun theme for me, not. And still, I had a lot of work to do around shifting that pattern of belief. And I couldn't just change my mind. It meant I had to exercise all of the sensational memory data in my body. So there was a lot of somatic work that went with it. It meant feeling, really allowing myself to feel all of the hurt, the grief, the anger, the sadness, the betrayal. that went with being to blame over and over again. And then something shifted in me little by little. I came a little bit more into who I really am and where I begin and end and that recognition that other people have their own journey, that they may invite me to go along with them, to walk beside them for a while. And yet what they choose is up to them. They are each independent people with their own minds and their own souls and their own bodies that will inform what next step they take for themselves. And while I may walk along with them and hold the flashlight and be a guide, I cannot be responsible for their lives in the way that I had been held responsible for my mother's and marks and this fetal tissue. And 
walking through all of that in every way that you can really imagine walking through the fire. Born of that has been a deep and lasting gratitude. For every one of those challenging experiences, including Mark blaming me, because I obviously didn't get it before that. I was living it, but it didn't send me over the edge to really work with it and heal it and see what was going on. If Mark had never blamed me, I probably wouldn't be doing the work that I'm doing. Or I would have had to get hit over the head even harder than he did that day, that night. In the work that I do with people, we sometimes refer to the people who trigger us as benevolent message monsters. They may not intend harm, but they are bringing us something to work with and they really seem like freaking monsters in the moment. And the reality is that Mark was not well behaved when he was doing that. I mean, he really was a monster when he was doing that. And more work had to happen for me to get to a place of forgiveness. And that forgiveness is a whole other topic. But the gratitude for what I was given, for the opportunity presented to me and what I chose to do with it is deep-seated and real. It is the Grinch's heart getting bigger and bigger and bigger in my chest. It is because of those experiences and hardships and not attempting to just say, oh, well, he was just going through his own stuff. It's okay that he said that to me. No, it wasn't okay. Not even a little bit. And look at what it led to for me. Look at what I chose to make of those lemons. I can't tell you, I tried to in the beginning, but I don't think I can really describe how grateful I am for the work that I get to do. And I'm sure that I would not be doing this work or at least I would not have started when I started if Mark hadn't pulled the rug out from under me when he got in the car that night. I sometimes joke with my clients that when we meet a benevolent message monster, we might want to send them a fruit basket because they don't even know what they've offered to you. And it's just kind of a way of going, oh, yeah, thanks. 
I think I've probably sent Mark a few fruit baskets in one way or another over the years. So I don't know what this means for you. I don't know how you might be practicing bypass or how you may experience gratitude. All I know is that before I could get to gratitude, I had to walk through the fire for that deepest, most real gratitude in me. I had to give myself time and space for all of the other emotions and somatic experiences to be seen and heard and felt for me, by me, And it opened a door. So I think I'm going to leave that here just for you to sit with, be with. I thank you for sharing this time with me, my friends, my sweet trust tribe. You know, the reason that I say at the end about that I believe in you, even if you forget to believe in yourself, is because I really mean it. And I've had many people over the years do that for me. So I send you my love and know that I believe in you. And I look forward to our next time together. <laughs>